You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. This is a break from the normal BritFlix.com podcast service, what I'm grandly calling the Future of Film series, where I talk to a number of professionals across the film industry about the impact of COVID and perhaps look into our crystal balls and see what that might mean for the future of film, the future of cinema, and in particular, what it means for indie filmmakers. Without further ado, on with the show. Recently, as in during the pandemic, I've interviewed 20 people who are taking part in Inside Pictures programme, and we talked a lot about what does the pandemic mean for the film industry and what does a post-COVID world mean for the film industry. And understandably, everyone had a lot of guesses and opinions, but nobody had the answer because there was 20 different answers, there was 20 different impacts, and this is people who work in production, who work in distribution, who work in exhibition who work in sales people who work in stop motion animation you know there was no real full understanding of what this might all mean so with that in mind i reached out to people to see if i could get some opinions on maybe how they see what's what's happened what's happening and what might happen in the future welcome to another bitpits.com podcast my name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is film producer Keith Bell welcome to the show thank you Stuart lovely to be here Britflix viewers and listeners will be familiar of the great British horror film podcast that I do and two films that featured in that regularly were Dog Soldiers and The Descent two films that Keith produced but also he produced Harry Brown starring Michael Caine which I know is a favourite of John Baker, who uh, who runs the site and will be listening to this. So what I wanted to get off, Keith, before we get into the more serious stuff, is maybe a fond memory of shooting Harry Brown and in particular working with a, I guess, Hollywood, a bona fide Hollywood legend like Michael Caine. Listen, with Harry Brown, uh, Gary, who wrote Gary Young, and I always kind of had an idea of Michael Caine as, as the leading uh, actor and a leading man in it. 
And when I first discussed it with Matthew Vaughan, he said Michael Caine's playing that part, and it was just it was just a shoo-in. So for me, it was an absolute privilege to work with him, knowing his work, knowing or growing up with the films that he was in, everything from Italian Job to um, Escape to Victory to Man Who Would Be King to uh, Bridge Too Far. I can go on and on and on. So when I actually met him and we got talking about it and stuff like that, it was just just a joy to work with him. Um, one particular thing, it wasn't necessarily a particular story that I'm, is memorable. It's more just observing his process, observing how he did stuff. And he had this very dis- disarming way of starting an anecdote and telling a kind of story about a film he'd been in or an experience he had to get into an ultimately a place which would kind of take him out of being Harry Brown until the very point he needed to go there to channel that uh, experience into the performance that he delivered. And there was one time he was, he was just about to do the scene where he's told that his best friend, Len, has been killed in the um, foot tunnel. And Emily Mortimer, Mortimer, who plays the detective, knocks on the door, tells him and informs him of the death. And Harry comes back and sits on the couch all alone. And it's, it's a very tearful, emotional scene. And we're setting up and we're nearly ready to go. And all of a sudden, Michael, Says, and this was quite common then. This was kind of three, four weeks in. He says, um, when I first went to Hollywood, and everybody just kind of turned and thought, oh, this might be, this, this is a good one. This, this is interesting. So when I first went to Hollywood, um, I was sat in the foyer of the Beverly Hills Hotel, all alone. Nobody would speak to me. Nobody, nobody knew me. And all of a sudden, um, a helicopter lands outside and out gets John Wayne. Well, when he said John Wayne, the director, the first AD, or obviously hurrying to get prepped for the shot, turn and join in listening to this anecdote. And he tells the story. He tells it far better than I did, so I'm not going to go into the actual detail. You can get it on YouTube. I think it's one of them, the Parkinson interviews. And he tells the story of John Wayne coming in, putting his arm around him, giving him some advice, not wearing... Um, not wearing uh, a certain type of shoes, and just br- just brilliant advice from John Wayne, and he said it did did him the world of good. And from a moment when he's telling this anecdote, he's got all these people associated around him. He just snaps out of that, walks onto the set, and says, "Right, let's go," because he knows he's ready. He knows he's in that place, and he must have done that oh a dozen, fifteen or so times to do it. And um, he he used that as I say, to kind of take himself out of that Harry Brown persona, but to get him in the place that when he needed to go there, he could go there and he went there and he just delivered a fabulous performance. So all the time when Michael was on set and afterwards, he was just a joy to work with. He really was. He was fabulous. Now, obviously, we'd like to talk about that all the, for a lot longer, but we won't. What we have got you on for is because... Um, I've been doing a series of podcasts with various people from within the film industry, looking at what 2020 has taught us, um, what 2020 has impacted on, how it's disrupted, how it's created opportunities. I mean, the headlines we've seen have been around studios making decisions to take a film that would have been a huge global release in the cinema and reduce it to only available on their platform. Um We've seen um, smaller films get their life cut short. So I remember back at the start of 
of the pandemic in 2020, I interviewed Nick Rowland, who directed Cam with Horses. That was meant to be my next film that I saw in the cinema. But unfortunately, because of the lockdown, it didn't happen and it got pulled from the cinema. The release got rejigged and it was it was made available via VOD platforms. There was big and small impacts, um, but obviously we've we've had the canary in the caves of the, the Troll World Tour, the Mulan live action, the success or otherwise of of, um, of Christopher Nolan's Tenet, and the never ending will it will it will it or when it get released the Bond next Bond movie, which seems to be the measure of when I guess life is back to normal. You know, the idea that when my father in law can see a film, I think also just bringing it bang up to date. The film, which is probably the best film of the year, it's already won some sizable awards. It's nominated across the board. It, hopefully, it will win the Academy Award. Uh, Nomadland by Chloe Zhao. Audiences will see that first in this country on Disney Plus. Yeah, they won't be able to see it in the cinemas because the cinemas will be closed, and Disney Plus are releasing it in about four weeks' time. But also, you've got Steve McQueen putting out. Um, a five series of films of different lengths called Small Acts, and two of them were in the were in the top fifty films of the year in Sight and Sound. So it's been a it's been a hell of a year in terms of in terms of difference of what we normally expect. Now, the bigger headlines have obviously been written by what the studios have done or not done. Um, but what I wanted to talk to you about and what we what we had a little chat about was about what what this means for indie filmmaking and and in a sense the sort of umbrella of this conversation in terms of looking at how did 2020 treat us and what does 2021 and beyond hold for us is, you know, indie filmmaking perhaps needs a reset in terms of producing for the theatrical space or producing for whatever space it's, it's producing for. So in that sense, what do you think 2020 has taught us about indie film and the cinema, or should I say probably indie film and its potential for cinema? I mean, that's a, that's a big question because really from an indie film producer and if a, an indie film is not a studio film, it's not bankrolled by any of these studios, a, a classic indie film is an independent producer works with a director and a writer uh, with different pots of money, some soft money, some um, uh, private finance who ultimately try to get the film made and then get into the distribution system like that rather than doing it the traditional way, which is a studio system. The biggest issue was from March last year, probably right up until about September, October, um, unless you were a huge, massive job, like studio back or Netflix back, you couldn't get insurance to film anything. So if you were all set to film something last summer, you wouldn't have been able to do it. You wouldn't have been able to get insurance. So if one of you, one of the crew got COVID and everything got shut down, all the expense today, you wouldn't be able to claim that. So Pact, the BFI, and others lobbied the government, and finally the, the government relented and, and introduced the production restart scheme, which gives independent producers the ability to ensure their productions. And it's just been extended, I think, again, the budget, and it's been adapted because originally it wasn't coverable for any actors over 70. So if I was doing Harry Brown last year, I wouldn't have been able to cover Michael Caine wow. with insurance. Um, just to bring it back to what we're talking about with Harry mm. Brown. Um, so the production insurance thing's a huge thing. So that's it. That was a that was a good thing that we finally got the insurance sorted out. But I think bigger than that, the biggest issue is 
how do you go about making an independent film? How do you go about financing an independent film? Because everybody in the world has been in this situation in various stages of lockdown, the big festivals and markets haven't happened. Yeah. There's been virt virtual, there's been Zoom and, and the infamous talc of Cannes last July. But it's not the same. It's not the same because ultimately you would go there with a film or with something you've already shot. You would talk to uh, financiers, distributors, sales companies, and you would do it like that. We haven't been able to do a physical festival. There was a physical festival in Venice last year, but that was very much for already done thing. It wasn't a market like Cannes or a market like Toronto is or, or Berlin. So we haven't had that. That's been a huge issue as well. Um, and I think the wider context of everything is where does indep independent films sit now, especially with cinemas, when cinemas are closed, where hopefully I had a discussion yesterday and we're still not sure if cinemas are going to open up in May. It'll all depend on how we go through this roadmap of coming out of lockdown. But you've had the big, huge studio stuff delayed and delayed and delayed. You've got Bond, which has probably moved about half a dozen times. So when cinemas do open up, they're going to be, there's, there's a huge logjam in the pipe of all the stuff that's coming down from Disney, from, from Universal, from um, Paramount, from the, the studios. That's what it is. There's a huge amount of stuff to come out. And I think. I think audiences have grown accustomed to, during lockdown, to watching, and I hate to use this word because I, I don't believe in this because it's, it's not a commodity. What we, what we make is commercial and can be artistic. But when you talk about content or products, people have been watching content on Netflix, on screens, which is right in front of me, like a laptop screen or if on, a, on a larger size TV. They haven't had that cinematic experience. If they're lucky, they've watched it with two or three people in their family or in their bubble, but they haven't had that cinematic experience. I think that's the big thing. I think it's a case of um, independent films needing that cinematic platform. And I'm using the word platform in the sense of you show a film in the cinemas for two or three weeks, you get a lot of press, you get some critical acclaim behind it. And then what you used to do is a few weeks after that, you would release on DVD. And then after that, you would go to uh, TV or whatever. Now it's you show the film and within within a really short space of time, it's on platforms and it's out to everybody. So it's on Netflix or it's on Prime or it's on Movie or it's on Shudder or it's on wherever. And I think that hurt. the business has been changing hugely and independent film has changed massively certainly over the past five years, yeah. um, because of the streamers, because of that. And that's a, that's a huge thing. And also DVD kind of, DVDs dying off and what you do now is you stream, you VOD. So, so in, a, in a sense, Keith, you, you, you're saying that some of the impacts and some of the changes we've been seeing and changes in approach are speeded up trends that were already in transit rather than reactions to COVID because COVID was a disruption. All, all COVID... Uh, has done is I'll use a business term which is like a false multiplier. All co all COVID do has done is supercharged change. Yeah. So what would probably have changed over maybe two three years with the antagonism, if you like, between the studio system and Netflix, or even filmmakers and Netflix and streamers, when you look at the relationship Cam had with them a couple of years ago, um, all COVID has done 
is literally supercharged that. So when we come out of COVID, we're in a different world. We're in a very different place than where we were when, when I started, when I did my first film as a producer uh, on Dog Soldiers. What does that mean in terms of size of film for the indie filmmaker? What they should be making in 2021 and beyond? And how can, how can the technology we have available help or hinder what we're trying to achieve? Well, I think technology has been the great change for the last 20 years. Because Just to give a small anecdote about Dog Soldiers, when we shot Dog Soldiers, we shot on Super 16. We shot in Luxembourg because of the tax facility there. Luxembourg didn't have a laboratory. So when we shot everything, it literally had to go all the way back to Soho, go through the bath, go through all the lab and stuff like that. They would tell us in here, give us a VHS rushes, send it back to Luxembourg. So after we shot anything, we had a really crazy little monitor where you could actually watch some stuff on a monitor but um, and record it. But with the technical stuff was just rubbish. But it took three or four days before you look back at stuff. We had six weeks to shoot it with all the cast and stuff like that. And we, we had 2.3, 2. 2.5 million quid to make it. Now, that film, you would probably make that film for less than a million quid or maybe a million quid with a VFX. You'd shoot it all digitally, obviously. You'd edit it all digitally. And as we were going through it and shot it, Neil would be able to look at it and kind of look on the, go to the DIT, look at everything coming through and literally kind of go, all right, I've got that. I don't need that. And change the way he works. That's how important digital technology has ultimately gone. And I'm not going to get into that argument about filmmakers shooting on film or digital. That's a choice. And if you've got a budget in a, in a financier who's happy to go that way, you go that way. But digital technology has changed the way we ultimately make films. And that impacts on me because it can be done quicker, it can be done cheaper. And that means I don't necessarily have to ask for too much money. No, you're, yeah, because if you don't have to wait three days to see how good what you've done is, just on, a, on that simple process alone, the idea that you've got an immediate view, and I guess in, on, on some shoots, you could have somebody on hand could be assembling rough, rough edits of sequences, and you can look at a whole day's shoot, can't you? By the, by, by the time you're having your dinner. We've done that on most films I've worked on. Really a brilliant editor, um, Joe Walker, yeah. who's edited Steve McQueen's films and he worked with Denny Villeneuve. He cut Harry Brown and he was cutting it while we were shooting it. And he mm. came down on the set a couple of times, just viewed what was going on. But it's, it's, it's really useful if you're putting it together. We never had that facility. We just didn't have anything like that. And it's, it's, it's a strange one. I just think, bring back to the, your original point, I think there's a question which the entire industry has to ask itself. And you can't do this with just asking one element of the industry. Yeah. That we've seen lottery money, and I'm going to talk it specifically from the UK. No, that's I could what, widen it out. No, I think it's important to give a UK perspective. I think we've got to talk about the UK because the US and Europe could be seen differently. But certainly from a UK point of view, there's been government help and the BFI through the National Lottery saved cinemas, let's call it that, by subsidising them, by giving them a pot of money to literally keep the building in place, yeah. keep, the, keep the four walls and the screen. So when we do come out of COVID, we have to win that audience, which has got lazy, which has got very comfortable in its chair. How do you, how do you ultimately um, get that audience into a cinema? One little bit of context, which some people know and some people don't about me, is I've been producing for 20 years now feature films. I've done TV and stuff prior to that. But prior to that, I was a cinema manager. 
I yeah. used to, I was a cinema manager in Newcastle, and then I did the whole north of England, and I was a trainee, and then an assistant, and worked for ABC. So I've worked on kind of both sides of the fence. I've worked on exhibition, and obviously I've worked on production. And I always think, as a producer, I think that is a really useful thing to have because first thing you as a writer would write, I'm thinking, what's the audience thinking? How am I going to get those people who are quite happy sat at home? You know, how am I going to get them out on a wet Saturday afternoon to come to the cinema to watch this film? So we're going to have to price it right. We're going to have to market it right. We're going to have to do all these things. And I just think if the money has been spent to to protect these buildings, which I'm so glad because they need to be protected, you have to be able to protect the filmmaker as well, who's ultimately going to deliver films that are to be shown in there. These films, these amazing cinemas can't be just there just to kind of be or the Christopher Nolans of this world. They've, they've got to be for everything. You know, there, there are a couple of films, you mentioned Calm With Horses, True History of the Kelly Gang, which I've seen on a, saw on a screen that big, and I really wanted to see it on a cinematic screen. I really did. A film which I missed first time around, but I caught it again, but another one I really wanted to uh, see on a big screen is um, Jennifer Kent's Nightingale. You know, I, I want the cinematic experience. That's why I make films. I, I don't. I, if I didn't, I'd make TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I work. I work specifically in TV. So cinema needs to be cinematic, and I and I think that need, that dialogue needs to be between filmmakers, exhibitors, distributors, sales, and funders. In in kind of going, look, if we're going to save these things, save these places of. Um, from a cultural point of view, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are we putting on in these places? Because I've noticed cinemas in the last few years, my local cinema show, shows live events from the National Theatre, uh, live events from the um, ballet, live events from the Royal Opera House. So so they're using them as live link of digital technology, all that type of stuff. Cinema needs to be cinematic. Therefore, the buildings that have been saved by the government, by the BFI. They need to get into that dialogue with filmmakers, exhibitors, distributors, sales companies about what is what are the films that ultimately are going to attract audiences. Because if I believe if we carry on kind of making a certain type of film, most of those cinemas probably won't survive because there's the way the streamers are going, they may look the studios may look bottom line and go, look, we're only going to show a cinema a film in a cinema for a couple of weeks. And that's it. And the multiplexes of this world can sustain that. The smaller ones may not. So are you saying that that out of this disruption where where the big studios have maybe tried to take, well, they have tried to take control they've always wanted of the of the whole process of, of making and exhibiting a film, which they lose control of once it goes into exhibition space because the exhibitors hold a certain amount of power. So if that power has been eroded through a speeding up of a desire that was already there before COVID. You're saying there's an opportunity for indie filmmakers to make make films in the UK that could fill a gap that could be created in in the scheduling. Because I guess I guess pre-COVID, you would have indie filmmakers would have complained, well, how the hell do I get my film on at the cinema when when all the slots are booked up? I mean, the best I can hope for is half eleven on a wet Thursday in the morning, which is probably one of my bugbears. Is, and, and to answer your question, I'm a producer because I get knocked down, I get up again. I've mm. got integrity, but I've also got the capacity not to take no for an answer. Yeah. And I hate to use a kind of Harvard Business School kind of mannerism or whatever you want to call it, but it's kind of like 
you see a crisis, there is an opportunity there. And I think we could be all morose and all be very negative about where the future stands. But I think we have to be positive to say technology is with us. We have to do something different because of the audience. The audience necessarily hasn't changed, but it's certainly been given access to content on a much wider scale without any competition. Um, so how do we win that audience back? How do we advertise cinema? How do we advertise the, the collective um, experience of bringing people into a crowded room with other people watching a film collective? And I think that dialogue has to be with filmmakers as well as everybody else. So the opportunity is there. The opportunity is very much there. But I think from a financial point of view, one of the bugbears for me was, was I, the, my local cinema, my local kind of independent cinema, in Newcastle, the Tyneside Cinema, which was had up until recently was very much funded by um, BFI and had a lot of money thrown at it. It would also be programming Batman or or um, you know a huge Hollywood film as well as the Empire or the Gate in complex, which is a multiplex complex in Newcastle, which was showing the same film around the corner and classic films, which I still think is a huge area where fit film needs to be seen as classic films as well as new independent films were kind of shoehorned in to the program and i think what it was it was a financial decision to say look if all we show is these little indie films we won't be able to sustain it we actually have to run it as a business and i think that's more of a dialogue i think it's a question back to the filmmakers you have to make films which people are going to go and see so when television came around in the 1950s and after the war and everybody bought TV, this American studios decided to go, well, if everybody sat at home watching TV, what will make people leave their home and go to a big a big screen and watch a film? And they came up with Technicolor and was it called um, Centurama or something like that, with Cinerama, which was a huge big, and it was events, it was things like that. And also yeah. they decided to do stuff which wasn't small screen stuff. It wasn't I Love Lucy, it was, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Quo Vardis, big Roman epic, which were Cleopatra, you know, huge things which you had to see on a big screen. You couldn't watch it on a TV screen. You had to be hmm. bombarded by the cinema. I think also, I think it's a case of, with the technology we've got, you using that even from an independent point of view, that the, the, the films people will go and see and have to, have to be, in essence, a film that belongs on a big screen. It doesn't, it's not about a film which could be quite easily watched on BBC Two at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. I guess, and I guess that that's, that there'd be people listening thinking, yeah, the Bridge of River Kwai is, is wonderfully visual and so is Lawrence Arabia. But a minute ago, we were talking about the fact that, say, Dog Soldiers, you know you would have been making it now for, for a million pounds. So I guess the challenge is then is, and this comes back to the point about size of film, if, if what we're doing is making interesting films for a million pound or perhaps a bit less, what are, we, what are we needing to do to make them fit the theatrical space rather than just be a film? When I, when I just... use things like Lawrence Arabia, Bridge and the River, quite like Core Vardis, things like that, big, huge things. That was an example of how Hollywood reacted to the, screen, the streamers yeah. and how that. Um, so the, the Marvel world, Star Wars world, the worlds of um, Christopher Nolan, those will be the things Hollywood will say. We're not just going to stream everything. Cinema is still a place that mm. we believe. Think. I I don't believe we've ever really. There are 
some notable exceptions, but I don't believe we've actively pushed a lot of foreign language films, films that have won awards in this um, in, in European festival in this country. You kind of see them and they're blinking to miss it. Funnily enough, last year you had Parasite winning um, the Best Picture Award. A lot of people I know went to see that cinema, but I know a lot of people who also have just caught it on, on platform, on streamer. I think we obviously, I'm, I'm not saying independent filmmakers need to make something massive, need to make mm-hmm. Lawrence Arabia. I think it's just a compelling, and I hate to use the word commercial because I'll get onto this in a minute, which is sometimes seen as a dirty word in the British film industry. Um, but a commercial film, um, which I believe an audience will want to go and see surrounded by people. Because I know from a dog soldier's point of view that a lot of people caught it on DVD, it's been on TV a few times and stuff like that, but the people who saw it at the cinema or the people who've seen it at a festival with a, with a horror crowd or something like that, mm. there's something about watching a horror film surrounded by 200 people. One of the abiding memories of me growing up was I, I don't know how I got in to see it. It was a 15 certificate. I was only 10 or 11. And I saw Jaws at the ABC Haymarket in Newcastle on a massive screen. And there's that amazing scene when they go out, it's all fogged, and um, Raw, uh, Richard Dreyfus goes diving down and he goes to uh, the boat and the head comes out and, it, and it, it looks into the screen and it falls out. And he panics and screaming in the aisles, you know, you could feel the energy of mm. being in a cinema. And I, I remember with Dog Soldiers, the laughs, the funny bits, the, the shocks, the, the kind of banter, that working with a theatrical audience. It's great watching it on TV, that's fine. But when you watch it with a, with an audience, it's, it's just so much better. And well, I yeah, I mean, I mean, your other, the, your, the other horror film that you're very much known for, The Descent, you know, once you're in the cave, on the big screen, you're in the cave with them. Because you're in a dark, because you're in a dark room to start with. <laughs> I was one of the producers on that. There was a bunch of other producers on that as well. But I remember um, doing a test screening of the Descent, yeah. and uh, it was released by Pathé in the UK. And uh, we did a test screening where I think it was students of certainly young people were brought in, and we were watching the film. And I sat at the back, and basically you watch the film, and then you handed out cards at the end where you've got to fill in what you thought of it, what you thought of the main character the best bit, the worst bits, what do you think of the music? Things that you could actively change before you ultimately release the film. Mm. And there's a scene, I think it's in the first third of the film, where Alex and Natalie are, are in a kind of tunnel, and, and it's kind of claustrophobic. It's not where the crawlers are around. It's kind of the, the roof's falling in. And there was a poor girl in the second row kind of faint, and her boyfriend kind of picked her up and walked her out to get a kind of to revive her and kind of make sure she was okay. And thankfully she was. But I always remember at the end, when everybody filled in their, their cards and handed them back to the distribution company, the guys from the distribution company were high-fiving each other, going, did you see the girl carried out? You know, they were <laughs> going crazy because the audience reaction was huge. And Paranormal Activity, Jason Bloom used this a lot of times where he's done, where they've actively shown films and they've put little video cameras in the audience, getting a response from the audience and they've used that in the marketing material. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. You can't make that stuff up. That's, that's better than showing a trailer. So what we're saying here then in, in some senses is that in terms of the films you want to make, if you want, if, if, if the pressure on a Tyneside cinema is to, get bums on seats, then in a way, 
a shortcut to familiarity for an audience and in terms of commercial with a small c is to invite genre to your to your drama well i would i would definitely say that i would I, but i would say that if you're going to try to win over that that audience of um and this is me unashamedly saying this. This is a personal opinion, but this is me because... I'm only after your subjective view, Keith. Yeah, yeah. Well, my subjective view is this. If we're going to try to win that audience back into the cinema, yeah, um, scaring people, great. Making people laugh, fantastic. Uh, giving people a sense of wonder, so you maybe have sci-fi. Yeah. Um, you know, even feel good, rom-com, you know, feel good. You know, get them back into the cinema. That's what they need. We've done and we have a great heritage of films in this country which come from a social realist point of view. We've got Mike Lee, you've got Ken Loach, you've got everything from the work of Alan Clark. But I, I tend to think if we're going to give audiences and we want to win audiences back into the cinema, I think we, we need to entertain them and we have to be quite commercial in that. And that's what I'm, that's what I think. The independent sector has to have an element of that. It really does. But yeah, but what you're saying though is that they're still. I mean, laughing, being scared, in awe, is st- while while very simple sort of base emotions. They're still feelings, and it's like to go out of a night out and get to you know expect that and to experience that is quite a rewarding thing. You know, as as for film fans and obviously- well, a comedy is always much better if you're if you're in a group of people and you're watching a comedy and it's, yeah. you know you know. Um, but I, I just, I, I, it, it's that thing that we, we went mad at again and again and again is how do we, how do we maximize this amazing space with these seats and a projector and that feeling of, it's a, you know, it's the magic lantern. It's the collective experience of watching something together. And, and I think you've got a huge amount of stuff which people have only ever seen on a small screen, classic films. Those, you should be programming classic films into into cinemas again and again. Saying, See it on the big screen because it's a different ex- experience. But I think also you're looking at genre and you're looking at story, which kind of works with very much an audience in mind. Yeah. Because the one thing independent can't do is you can't do the epic. Yeah, you can't have 3,000 extras for half a million pounds, can you? You can't compete with Jim Cameron and Avatar and that or Titanic or whatever because that is an event. You go to the cinema for that event. Mm. But I remember talking to Bobby Carlyle, which I had a great deal of fun working with him some years ago on a film called The Tournament. And Bobby said, when he first read the script of Full Monty, he thought it was pitched. He did. Mm. He thought it, he said it was awful. I've, I've read that quote myself. Yeah, and he thought it was terrible. And he said they made it, and then they kind of worked it around in the edit, and then the marketing people kind of went, oh, there's something about this. And they found their audience. They found that amazing audience of, and there were hen parties going to it. There were people making a night out from it. You know, like, oh, let's go and see that film where the guys all did it. You know, you make something of it. And I think, I think there's an element of programmers within, within independent cinemas and filmmaking. I just think, you know, I would never consider myself arrogant enough to kind of go, I know absolutely everything about the filmmaking process. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell the distributor or the sales company what to do. I'm going to talk about them. I'll offer my opinion, but I'm not going to tell them their job. But I do think there's something to be gained within that exhibition sector across the distribution sector and the production sector where we're all talking and kind of go, how do we, how do we ultimately reach a, as wide an audience as possible? And, and even 
some cinemas show some experimental stuff. Because I think the BFI had a film bait. I think you could have shown that film a lot more probably in cinemas because I think audiences kind of need to see something a little bit different. Because the difference is a good thing. You're not going to, you need to be showing something that they're not going to get at nine o'clock on IT. I guess, I guess one of the big things though, COVID, even COVID aside, is that I guess film hasn't competed for people's attention with so many other aspects of what they might be doing with their time. If you can't almost like guarantee the sense I'm going to, I'm going to give you something that's going to alter your mind, even if it's just for the moment, for the time you're watching it, because you're cocooned in a cinema, then you're not offering anything, are you, in the end? I think also, and we've got to, we've got to uh, reference this point as well, we are talking at a time of independent cinema where television has very much come back. Yeah. People are calling this the golden age of television, which is everything from Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Sopranos, right up to Ozark, Call of Duty even, you know, the um, Downton Abbey, I'm thinking great big, big budget, high-end TV, and you're looking that. But I do think the argument has to be said is, and this ties into Netflix and the streamers, is you're making something which is going to be viewed on a small screen. I mean, I, I'll use the example of that, which is 10 years ago, oh, no, yeah, 10 years ago, I think it was, 9 or 10, I went to Dubai business and I was coming back to divide Newcastle on the Emirates plane and a guy next to me was watching Terence Malick's Tree of Life on the back of somebody's seat, you know, on his little screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he kind of got into it and he, and he talked to me and he said, have you seen this? And I said, yeah, I've, I've seen it on the big screen. I'm a huge fan of the director. And he's going, I can't really make it out because it's a bit esoteric, but it looks amazing. And I went, just think, if it looks amazing like that, <laughs> can you imagine seeing this whole thing. And it's a bit like, I can show you a picture online, I can get a Google image now and send it to you of the Sistine Chapel. You know, Michelangelo's masterpiece in the Sistine Chapel in, in Rome. It's not the same as walking into the Sistine Chapel and looking up and seeing it. It's just not the same. And I think I think there has to be a big kind of collective push to kind of get to get the audiences back in. And I think production has to play, play a part in that. It really does, because we're we're ultimately the people who make the damn film. But so, so, in, but in some senses, though, there, there, there's a lot of films getting made more so than ever before, and a lot of a lot of films, without picking any in particular, fall short of the grade. Full stop. Because filmmaking ultimately has become easier and cheaper. Mm. So, in the hands of people, they can ultimately go, "Look, I'll hold up. I'm I'm holding this up as an example." But I realise this is a podcast. But hold, he's holding up I'm, his phone, dear listener. I'm holding up my phone, and that thing is a movie studio. I can shoot something on it. I can edit it. I can uh, sell it, distribute it, market it. I can do everything from this amazing thing. That is a movie studio. Yeah. That's amazing yeah. technological thing. Technically, it's obviously not going to be as good as Christopher Nolan doing 70 mil and huge production and stuff like that, but it's, but it's a movie studio. I think it's a case of people having, I think that's a wider question because I think the industry in this, in this country, in the UK, is fragmented. There is There are larger independent producers who are bankrolled, if you like, by big Hollywood studios, people like Working Title, who have an output deal with Universal. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, huge, big production companies who've got big track records and attract all sorts of talent and can be packaging 30 to $50 million projects. You've got smaller production companies who are doing 
stuff for the BFI or BBC Films or Film 4. And then you've got this, whatever you want to call it, this, this underground of filmmakers who are making stuff for now, for na- making stuff for very little, using funding which has become available during lockdown and during the pandemic, bounce back loans. People are doing that. I know five films have been financed by a bounce back loan. And it's genre. It will play at a festival. It will probably satisfy their investors. It may even get that filmmaker notice. Who's to say 20 years from being in Luxembourg shooting dog soldiers, everybody passed on that film. Nobody wanted it. Nobody was doing horror. Um, Working title even passed on it. We showed it to them. If Neil and I were doing it now, when we'd spent four years trying to get that film made and everybody passed, we'd probably do a bounce back loan and make dog soldiers for, you know, well, I mean, 100 grand or 50 grand or whatever. Yeah. Um, the potential of breaking it out is, is, is there because you can self-distribute. You know, you can basically do, do the phone thing. You can shoot it, do it, market it. You could do it yourself if you wanted to, or you get into other platforms, which are more genre specific platforms and sell it to them. There's a monetization to be made of it, but, it, uh, but really what those films are are what I would call, call calling card movies, which are movies to get you kind of noticed and kind of go, oh, well, we did that. And that actually did really good numbers and it broke even and, you know, did all right. And then they kind of step up. But there just seems to be, this is my little political thing, but I think there's a cultural elitism in film in this country where you are that level of film and you're nominated for this and you get awarded this. But if you're that, which could even be more commercial than the first thing, you're not as well regarded. And I think that's a, I think that's a problem. And I think if COVID's taught us anything, we need to accept that and access that. I really do. Mm. Because I think some people, I think some people are using the technology and making genre and their films, but it's not, it's not cinema. And I think we've got to make cinema to attract people back in. And, and I'm not being, I'm not being artistic with that. I'm not saying we're not, we're all going to be Goddard or Truffaut or Bresson or, or, or even John Ford or somebody like that. I'm talking about, there has to be something about the big screen. There has to be something about watching it on a good projector. There has to be something about watching it collectively and being completely flabbergasted by it. You know, my kids, I mean, my kids, I used to take my kids to the cinema all the time. And thank God for Pixar. Great stories, well-written, well-told, fabulous characters. Every Pixar film, with maybe the odd exception, works. I've sat through some dreadful stuff. I mean, Alvin and the Chipmunks crying out loud they've, they've grown they've grown up now but my kids were saying they said oh in lockdown can we go to the cinema again so the, the cinema is still there in kids minds it's just it's interesting that i think with the advent of technology and with it with, with um with the streamers it's not the only game in town well look change attack for you then you worked on we are the geordies documentary yes 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 uh, which was released in december 2020 it's obviously released in the pandemic um, and that's that's a model for for um, and an argument for self distribution as a viable option to the indie filmmaker. So, can you? Sh- I mean, we had Z on the podcast talking about making the film, but but do you want to talk about maybe what control that gave you the self distribution? What that meant for the film? I I as a producer for a little bit of context. I, as a producer, I'm always kind of learning. I'm always trying to kind of test myself. I'm always kind of going, I don't know how to do it. As I've said at the very beginning, the industry is changing. 
when Zara first talked to me about the Newcastle United fan film, um, We Are the Geordies, I thought it was a great idea. I helped her with, I was an executive producer, so I helped her with financing and I've helped her with kind of um, how we've gone about distributing it, self-distribution. What ultimately happened was because we didn't have a huge amount of money, so money and time has a huge influence, was like I said before, Bounce Back Loan helped to finish the film. You could pay people to finish the film. We got BBFC certification and we were living in the world of a pandemic. So our case was, we might not be able to get this into cinemas. So I said, the most important thing is you need to get this out from a retail point of view, whether it's an online retail or it's actually in store retail, so people can buy it before Christmas. So we geared up the launch for uh, the 7th of December. Working with consultants and others, we ultimately devised the plan and we ultimately got, got, it, got it noticed. I think it's a really, really good, honest fan film about the club that I love. But really what it was interesting was the people who were watching it all at home on a small screen, it was conveying that thing that I've been gassing on about, which is the crowd, the mm. being in a crowd, because the one thing that had been taken away from them, yes, it's about Newcastle United, but actually it's about being a fan. It's about being in a being in an auditorium, being in a place with people bearing down on you, screaming at you, shouting at you, and being in, a, in an arena. And that's what it's about, in, in that whole collective nature of crowds and collective nature of being in a crowd and being a fan. So you, you, you work in a very different place than you would normally do as a film producer, which would be you would get a distributor on board, the distributor would say this, and you would literally hand over everything. Starro was very hands-on. We kind of cut out a lot of the what collectively used to be called the middlemen, so we didn't have a sales agent. We got uh, um, Sophie from Central City Media um, on board um, as an aggregator who had the relationships with the streamers. So as well as buying it in your local HMB, you could download it on iTunes, you could download it on Amazon, you, could, you know, you have to basically factor that in because really, out of every crisis, the opportunity was there to reach an audience for this film, and we thought that was the best thing about it. We really, we really did. And what would you say for for the for the indie filmmaker listening in? What was a what was a hard lesson that you learned that you could pass on to people about approaching self distribution? I think, from my point of view, Zara may differ, but I think from my point of view is. It was the lesson Neil and I learned really way back, which is we want as wide an audience as possible for Dog Soul. But really, we had to satisfy our niche audience, which was the horror fan. So if we got if we upset the horror fan, we wouldn't have reached that wider audience. We just wouldn't have broken out. We wouldn't have been able to get that opening weekend, which cinemas work on this proviso, and this is kind of film exhibition 101 is, if you make enough, if you make enough money on your first three or four days of opening, the cinema tends to think, right, we'll hold it over for the next week, unless Star Wars is opening on the next week and they've booked every single cinema. But that's how it works. If it's died on its arse on the Friday night and doesn't get anybody in on the Saturday and Sunday, the person who books that cinema for the following week isn't going to book it. So we had to reach our niche audience on that opening weekend. So with a horror audience, we kind of went into all the fan scenes and everything else like that. And the kind of the werewolf movie idea was, right, we need to push that. I think with the fan film, it was very much a sense of we had to reach our niche audience, our the Newcastle United football fan, you know, the hardcore 
they would if a DVD came about came up about the kind of nineteen seventy Bears Cup win, they would buy that. You know, the kind of memorabilia of it. Yeah. I said if we can hit that and roll with that, we'll be good. And I said we've got to get people buy the buy in of people. And weirdly, I don't think most British films, you may think differently because of the podcast, but I definitely think there's still a feeling of the mainstream press, you know, the newspapers, you know, writing a review, some validation maybe from a trade or an industry paper. But my the big thing that came to me, because this was really new to me, and just how much the industry is changing, is social media drove more people to watch that film than anything. So if we could put a little excerpt on Twitter and get some key influencers on Twitter to kind of post that out, we had a Newcastle United footballer, mm-hmm. Isaac Hayden, Posted it, and that kind of went mad. And we had the, we had a, we had a buy-in from the local newspaper, the Chronicle, who kind of championed it and saw the film and saw what it is, and they released the trailer on there. And it just social media was massive. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those things. All of that is relatively small. It is, and it's certainly a lot cheaper than kind of spending a hundred thousand a pop on a TV commercial on Sky. I guess, I guess, in a way, social media for film has become a place. An intimate but broad church place, all at the same time, where somebody can recommend something or sh- highlight, highlight something. You go, oh, I tr- well, I like John Smith, whoever that. It doesn't have to be a celebrity; it has to be someone who well, think, likes think Newcastle like you, you do, or likes documentaries like you do. Think about, think about when you first went to the cinema. Think about anybody our age, even younger, first went to the cinema. They tended to only see what was coming as a trailer. There was no other place for a trailer to be seen. Mm. You might, if you were lucky, you might get a trailer on kind of ITV. They might spend a bit of money on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, tended to, but they only tended to see commercials after the film had been released. Hollywood's Hollywood because it's, you know, it's where the power is and where the money is. And they know, they knew when they released the Marvel trailer for the last, you know, all the Iron Man and the, and the Avengers films. They would drop that on YouTube. It would just drop and it would just go mental. And there'd be like a billion hits on that thing. They knew then that the numbers that they were going to have when they opened, they opened that film. And they used social media to drive it rather than putting Avengers Assemble on the side of a bus. And I think sometimes now we still do that in this country. We still, I, I still think we're, I still think we're obsessed in the old fashioned way of doing it rather than the new way of doing it. Whereas, I can switch. I switch my phone on, and I can go on Instagram. And I, and I've just been through this at the moment. I, I recently interviewed Chris Smith for the Banishing, and that Vertigo have done some brilliant things where they're they're using three second clips of a film with a watermarked standout quote from a review, and then with the release date details. So you've kind of got, and that's just Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Now, what you would normally do. In, a, in an independent film is you would have all of that marketing and all of that distribution stuff over to the sales company and distribution company. All of, They would have it. What you've got now is when budgets are tight and people are making films for next to nothing is they're in charge of their own social media. Yeah. They're in charge of their own kind of thing. And I think also this, it has to be said, which is a useful thing is there's a lot of filmmakers out there who aren't just making the commercial genre stuff. There's a lot of filmmakers out there who are making films for a different audience, which is they're making uh, films for maybe a festival audience, which gets festival acclaim and gets noticed and picked up 
and then obviously that that's a whirlwind in itself. I mean, and, the th- and for the indie filmmaker that is listening in, um, you know, it can't be underestimated the impact of COVID on that because oh, the value that that any that any B B or A grade film festival can lend your film through an audience award if it's a genre movie, say, or a <clears throat> or a premiere at a Venice, if if it's more of an art house type film. Is, is immeasurable compared to how much money you might have available to market the film because you suddenly... I mean, the weird thing is, and I laugh about this sometimes, is I've seen films which have played all sorts of festivals and they put on the poster all the laurels. They're really... The only laurels that matter on a poster are the Cannes Festival, Venice, Toronto, or a specific genre festival like a Sitges or a Frankfest or a Grimfest or something like that. Because if it's specific to the niche audience, that niche audience isn't really bothered they played at Venice. More bothered that it won the audience award at Sydney or Brussels or wherever, and it's just. But the filmmakers themselves can have this knowledge. You know, you and I work, don't work in the distribution sector, the marketing sector, but we know from a film point of view that that information is out there, and we can gain that knowledge and access it readily. Well, let's get let's get existential then, Keith. Oh, let's. And you've hinted at this already with your with your with your dis, with your disdain. And I, I share your disdain for the term content with a capital C or a little c. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what is film in 2021 and beyond? Have things changed and are we having to change for it? Yes, it's, it's all about change. And it's not one thing, it's many things. Film can be an award-winning film, a, a um, critically regarded film, but it has to exist in really the format that it was made for. Hmm. That's that is absolutely crucial. And I remember talking to Ashley about this. Ashley Horner of Pinball Films, you're talking about. Ashley Horner of Pinball Films, producer director. And he's done ACE and the RB, which are producers' courses in Europe. And he said, when this kind of first broke last year, he said, and he knows a lot of filmmakers who will literally just hold on to their film. They won't be forced to release the film on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever. They'll just hold on to it until the year goes by. And it was supposed to come out in 2020, 2021. It'll be 2022, 2023. And that film will find a place at Cannes or find a place at Berlin or find a place. And you just think there are films and filmmakers who that is right for. I just think it's too easy to go, right, you have, you, you'll know this term. This is a readily identifiable term. There used to be a thing which was you made a film. If you got lucky, you've got a theatrical release. You did a theatrical release, give it a couple of months, then you would uh, rental DVD, so it was available in Blockbuster or wherever. Then a few weeks after that, it was buying DVD, so you went to HMB or Tesco or wherever to buy it. And then obviously sometime after that, it was available on um, TV, and you would watch it on TV. We could premiere probably on Sky, and then maybe a year or two after that, BBC or Channel 4 would get it, or Film 4 would get it, which is a kind of platform in itself. That's all kind of changed. Everything has changed. And you just look at it and you look at everything from, as I say, from award-winning films that belong in the cinema, even belong in the festival, to the person who's making a schlock horror film for 50 grand. You kind of go, if they know their market for it, if they know where their, their kind of niche is, that's fine. But we have to be, we have to be as an industry aware that this is a multifaceted, you know, industry. And industry is a term that I have a, I have a particular issue with because some some people think that the film business isn't it isn't a business in the UK. It's a lifestyle. There are other people who basically call the British film industry the British film service industry, 
because predominantly the amount of production that gets spent in this country is big Hollywood jobs or massive budget thing, which crews can make a stack of money. Producers can use the UK tax credit. Uh, producers can American producers, studios can use the ex, really good exchange rate. They love working here because the food's okay. They're speaking the same language. Hotels are nice, and they like and they like the crews. They like working here. But really, from an industry point of view, an indigenous industry point of view, it's very small and it's very elitist. And I think that's got to we've got to kind of break that out and kind of go. We are many things. We are everything from Sundance to Sitges, where everything from making making a film, which may be not be seen in the cinema, but it's a film, mm. and, you, and you should regard it. And I think I think that's a I think that's a big sea change from where we are. And without me naming any names of who said what and who said what to who, it's a case of you know if 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 people want to make a film that they want that they that they believe in, they should go ahead and make it because there there is. There is no sort of shortcut route into whatever you perceive to be the establishment of UK film, if it is indeed a lifestyle. And and in the end, if you and if you do make that film that that you believe in that is good enough, then the the the, the phrase, phrases like "Where have you been hiding?" will pop up, and then suddenly you're part of you've now recognised because you've been noticed. But if you never make the film, because that's really all it's about. It's all about being recognised and being pertinent. And I think a lot of it is is some people don't want to know what else is out there because it's going to bog them. It's, it, they don't want to know, uh, or it's going to confuse them. Or there's an elitism, which is I know it's there, but I don't really want to even entertain looking at it because it's not my thing. Mm. Um, but as I said before about the dog soldiers thing, if we were, if Neil and I were making dog soldiers now, and we everybody passed on it and everybody didn't go with it, um, we would probably rustle some money together and just try to make it, you know, mm. because we. We'd find an audience. We'd, we'd find something for it. I think as well as that, though, when we made Doctors 20 years ago, we were competing with video, VHS, DVD was just about to come out. Um, television, but television was really on its, on its up as it wasn't good because it, there wasn't anything to watch on TV. Now, if you're really going to make cinema work, if you're going to make film, it has to, it has to be able to sell because you're up against everything else. You're up against all the content, you know, so, do you want to do you want to basically get a nineteen year old to leave their house um, to go and watch a film, or are they happier sat in front of their video game or sat and watching YouTube? Because they might be. You know, there's a there's a big sell there. Indeed, really. well, there's a lot to work out there and a lot to unpack. But what, ha- what is there anything you haven't been able to say yet that that you'd like to say about maybe where future's heading? Yeah, I would. I've I've been on both sides of the fence. I'm Porchester and gamekeeper. I've worked in exhibition. I'm now in production. Here's a story. When when Dog Soldiers first came out, my local newspaper, the Newcastle Journal, put on its front page, million dollar weekend for local filmmakers. I walked into my local bar and two guys at the bar who I've known for forever went, he's a millionaire, million dollar weekend. You know, right. Million dollars was at that point 650 grand. 650 grand was what the path there accumulated from the figures from each individual screen around the country, which was 200 plus screens. Yeah. From a British, from a British film and a British genre film, that was, it was amazing. They That's were gangbusters. The That's gangbusters. gangbusters. Even gangbusters. by today's standards. Yeah, it was, it was gangbusters. Um, and we were held over for the second week and the third week, which was great. Um, but of that million quid, the distributor takes the piece. 
the cinema chain takes their piece. The filmmaker, the person who made the damn thing, gets, well, you know what I mean? Not much. There's yeah. not much left in the pot after everybody's been fed. I think, and this is a big thing, this is my thing, is if the government have spent and the BFI through the National Lottery have spent a lot of money keeping these cinemas propped up, those cinemas can't basically turn around to filmmakers and say, all right, I want 80% of the profit. You kind of got to go to the filmmaker and go, hold on, that money's come to you to, to keep here. If you're just going to stay there and show what the multiplex is going to show, you probably people aren't going to come. They'll go to the multiplex. Mm. If you're wanting independent film, I think independent filmmakers need to get a better piece of the pie. I really do. Especially if they're going to deliver the audience back into that film. And on that note, I shall thank you for giving us your time on the British Podcast. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.